Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From superfast communications to laserized surgery to unlocking the secrets of the universe, lasers are very important. And they're used in all over the world. And how do we get them to become such a groundbreaking tool to be used by so many different fields, from biology through to complex physics? Well, it took two groundbreaking inventions to first invent optical tweezers and then the chirp pulse amplification method. And that's what was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018. We've just seen the awarding of the Nobel Prizes for 2018. And this year, in a move that does deserve some recognition, the Nobel Prize awarding committee has actually had a marked improvement on many past years of overlooking people's achievements. This year, in fact, in the Physics Prize, we saw the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in Physics in over 55 years. We also saw a woman win a Nobel Prize in Chemistry as well. Not only that, she won half out of the three people, so she was the primary award winner, if you want to look at it that way. And this is some great moves from the Nobel Prize committee to recognize the fact that they have had historically a very poor performance when it comes to gender equity and recognizing people with astounding scientific achievements that have revolutionized fields that have gone unrecognized by Nobel Prizes. For example, Rosalind Franklin is one, but also people who are alive who still would qualify for a Nobel Prize, like Jocelyn Bell Brunel, who, her discovery of of radio pulsars in 1967 was pretty much recognized as one of the most significant scientific achievements in the 20th century. The discovery itself has already been recognized with the Nobel Prize, but she was not included on the list of recipients, which is, again, one of the examples of, historically, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences having a pretty poor record on this topic. But that's the past, and this is the current day. And the Nobel Prize has put out a statement saying that they will look to award prizes on a wider level, acknowledging variety of people's contributions, not just the lead author, but more so also the people doing a lot of the grunt work, and to try and address some of the gender imbalance in, in the prize. Now, that's the gender ratio question, but we have also want to recognize it keenly the achievements of these scientists who have achieved the pinnacle of scientific awards, the Nobel Prize. So we're going to look at the Nobel Prize in Physics this week because it is a very interesting topic. It's all about lasers, shooting them, and using them for very interesting applications, and making them do incredibly precise and accurate work on a fraction of the power budget that you would have to in the past. We're going to look at first the way in which you can use a laser as a tweezer. And then we're going to turn to the second half of the prize, where you can make incredibly powerful lasers on a power budget. And that is what was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2018 in physics, in three parts, to Arthur Ashkin, who's a 96-year-old laureate with some groundbreaking work in how to use and develop optical tweezers, as well as Donna Strickland and Gerard Moreau, who published a paper, Donna Strickland's first, in 1985, which laid the groundwork for developing CPA, or Chirp Pulse Amplication Lasers. Before we dive into the detail of this particular prize, we first have to look at some fundamental questions like, what is a laser? Because we're going to be talking a lot here about fantastic techniques and ways of using and improving lasers. We first need to understand exactly what a laser is and what a laser does. Now we can trace the origins of the word laser actually not 
to lasers themselves, but all the way back to the 1950s, where Charles Towns and Arthur Shalow came up with an idea that went on to win the Nobel Prize in physics earlier on for a maser, which is basically a microwave and radio wave way of stimulating and amplifying and ejecting an amplified signal. And this concept was worked on by a graduate student of Towns, Gordon Gould, who then came up with the idea of, instead of using radio waves or microwaves, using light instead, thus coining the term laser. Long patent battle in shoe before he actually finally got recognition for his work, even though he did it in 1957, till 1977 to actually get some or any of the patents for what became a fundamental area of physics. Now, the first person to build an actual stable, visible light laser was actually Theodore Maiman, who actually has never won the Nobel Prize in physics, despite being nominated twice. Uh, it was included in the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 84 and other honours, but never actually recognised for doing the hard work of actually building and making one of these theoretical devices work. So what is a laser? Well, a laser has all the information about how it works resting inside the name. If you're not aware, a laser is actually an acronym. And you should know that laser stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, which pretty much tells you everything that is going on inside a laser. But to explain how that works, let's take a step back. Now we know, for example, that you have inside an atom, a nucleus, its core electrons in shells in stable states in order out from the nucleus. And when a atom gets hit with some energy, like a photon, for example, this can get absorbed by that atom and add some extra energy to the thing, which kicks that electron up to a higher energy state. The problem is that electron wants to revert back to its normal low energy state later on. So it will try and drop down towards the center of the nucleus. This is a way to think about it. It's a bit more complicated about physically what happens, but that's a good approximation. When it does that drop down, it emits radiation, emits photon, that photon that came in in the first place and was absorbed. Now, normally, that process occurs just spontaneous. A photon comes in, maybe from a light source or something like that, and then bumps up a little bit of energy, and it emits that photon as the electron drops down. But what they found is that if you pack a lot of pre-charged atoms of a certain type of material all ready to go, and you fire a photon into that sort of grouping of atoms, you can release that original incident photon, an additional one with extra energy, and what you end up with is a cascade effect, where that then sparks off the photons around, the atoms around it, getting them to release more photons as the electrons in those atoms drop down to a low energy state, and so on and so on and so on, until you end up with a whole huge amount of photons coming out. That's what they mean by amplifier. For a small amount of energy in, you get this buildup and a large amount of energy out. And if you dope the atoms in that physical medium, this amplifier, with a variety of different chemicals, you can actually get them to emit only a certain type of photon with a certain type of frequency. And that's very, very important because now you have a targeted beam. Instead of it being scattered everywhere, like visible light, which includes lots of variety of different frequencies, which is how we see all the colours. They instead focus it down to emitting only one type, not just of colour, but of a really, really specific frequency and wavelength of colour. And that gives you a very powerful and focused and precise beam of light. That is how a laser works.
Arthur Ashkin loved the concept and the idea of lasers. So when they were discovered and formalized in 1960, Askin, who was working at the time at Bell Laboratories outside New York, had a great idea. In science fiction, there was a concept of a tractor beam, where you could use some kind of beam to move objects around without touching it. Even asteroids in space or things like that. And the idea for Askin was, well, if you can move something around with some kind of beam of radiation in science fiction, could you actually do it in reality? And what he turned to was this newly discovered tool, the laser, would be the perfect tool for getting beams of light to move small particles around. And he proved just that by illuminating micrometer-sized transparent spheres and puts them in the path of a laser. He found that they actually gravitated to the pressure of the radiation towards the center of the beam. And if you focus that light in a particular way, you could make that beam get trapped in the center and not move. So you could trap single, small particles. You can make them float in air and levitate if you inverted it and put it countering gravity. And what you use, this type of method where you focus in and grab a piece of object using laser power, it became known as optical tweezers because you're really focusing the light into a point that can be then grabbed, manipulated, or used in a variety of purposes. Particularly, not just from studying molecules, but even studying without damaging live bacteria and cells. An example of how incredible this work is, you could trap a single molecule in this optical tweezer. And if you wanted to study, for example, the way in which a kinesin molecule, which is a type of protein inside our bodies, you want to see how it moves and how it works inside your body as it processes chemical reactions inside your cells. Well, you could actually trap an individual one of those and measure by how much it pulls against your optical tweezer as it tries to struggle and move along the cell skeleton. You could actually measure the force exerted by these small molecules inside your cells. Laser t optical tweezers are pretty much the standard equipment for studying biological processes on individual proteins, molecular motors, DNA, or any of these type of nanomachines that we work. The field is called optical holography, and basically it's enabling a lot of different things to be developed, from separating healthy blood cells from infected ones, or maybe something to develop new vaccines and methods, or just studying the inner workings of cells. This optical tweezer technique of basically focusing and trapping particles inside a very, very tight laser beam that has been focused into a point. That is why Arthur Ashkin was awarded half of the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018 for developing a way to use a laser to help study live things and trap them in space in a perfectly controlled way without damaging them. Now that sounds a lot like science fiction, but Arthur Ashkin made it science fact. Now, with the invention of lasers and the actual proof and building of them in the 1960s, we've been using them in our daily lives for a lot of different things, whether it be for things like CD players, transmission of telecommunication equipment, medical scanning, medical treatment, 
Lasers have played an incredibly important role in our daily lives, but also in scientific research. From understanding and unlocking the secrets inside objects, through scanning devices, even in biological applications. But after the first functioning laser was built by the American visitors Theodore Moman in the 1960s, we had a quick development in to about 1966 of what we could achieve with laser power. And it sort of tapered off at, at around the 10 to the 15 watts per centimetre squared range. That was basically the limit of what you could squeeze out of a laser without, of course, destroying your amplifier in the first place. As we talked about, the whole way in which this works is you pump in a little bit of energy in the photon of a specific frequency, and thanks to the cascading effect of the atoms inside your material, whether that be a solid-state material like a ruby or a crystal, or maybe an ionised gas, uh, basically that amplifier that you're using could explode if you pumped too much power into it, which is no good. If you dial your amplifier all the way up to beyond its limits, instead of generating a huge amount of photons, oh, it will do that. But it will do that in such a way that it explodes. The other problem that we had from basically 1970 all the way through to mid-1980s is there was no good way to make a really, really powerful laser. Yes, you could keep adding more and more and more and build bigger and bigger things, but you ended up with a huge problem. And that was cooling the amplifier. You've got this amplifying circuit, but basically you could only fire the laser once a day because you had to wait that long for the whole amplifier circuit system to cool down. And you couldn't have a laser in your lab or in your desktop. You had to have it in a massive government-run facility, which meant the use of lasers in research was incredibly limited, let alone the use of lasers in industries if you wanted a particularly high-powered laser. So something had to be done, some way to actually make amplifying lasers get beyond this stall point that it sort of hit. And that's where the groundbreaking work of Donna Strickland and Gerard Moreau come in. Now, Gerard Moreau was Donna Strickland's supervisor all the way back in 1985 to the University of Rochester in the United States. And Donna Strickland was just getting started as a researcher. In fact, the paper that is referenced here and their work that has won them half the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018, was actually her first scientific paper. She was working with Gerard Moreau to try and find a way to make the chain reaction involved in a laser more stable, so you could get more and more energy out of it without requiring bigger and bigger amplifiers and cooling rooms to get them through. And what they came up with is a pretty interesting technique. The technique itself is called chirped pulse amplification, and we're just going to call it CPA to be short. But the basics of it is pretty interesting. You take a short pulse of light from a laser, then you pass it through a grating pair. This grating pair basically breaks it out into components and stretches, if you want to think about it that way, out the light. What happens when you stretch out that light is that the amplitude if you know anything about waves, we measure them in frequency and amplitude. The amplitude basically being the height or how powerful or the big spike is when you see it. If you've imagined seeing an audio waveform, the little single of symbols of audio things going up and down, the bigger that is, that's the bigger amplitude. The frequency is the spacing between uh, pulses or striations that you see on the marking. Now, by stretching out the frequency, by pushing it through this grating pair, you actually stretch out the pulses and lower the amplitude, basically squashing the laser. And that's particularly important 
because now the laser's peak amplitude is a lot lower, which means you can amplify it easily and to a very, very large degree. Where before you had to worry about amplifying the laser very, very carefully so you didn't blow up your amplifier, now you could go nuts and you could crank it all the way and amplify your signal a tremendous amount because you actually reduced it going into it in the first place. Now, now you had a very stretched out, long and thin, but very powerful laser beam of light. You need to then get it back to its original form. So you pass it back through another grating pair, which compresses it back. So you stretch it at the input and compress it at the end. And that means now you have an incredibly powerful laser that has all that amplification that you could do in the middle, but you could do it without blowing up your amplifier in the process. Now, the initial proof of concept of this involved a lot of fiber optic cable. Around 1.4 kilometers is what they had to get away with using because halfway through they broke some of the cable. And they took time and challenges to get it all, this beam stretching and compressor technique to actually work. But once they nailed it in 1985, it revolutionized laser technology. Now, you could get an incredibly powerful laser without destroying your amplifier. And that is incredibly important because it means that average researchers could have a laser in their laboratory. They didn't need to go to the largest facilities in their country to actually have time on a powerful laser. Powerful lasers became a very readily accessible tool. And when I say readily accessible, I mean not just for university researchers. Everything from storage of information on disks through to, well, using it for laser eye surgery and medical scanning, and industrial research, and a number of different applications which need very high-powered but very low-power requirement on the input lasers. And that is incredibly exciting for the world as a whole. If you've had or know someone who's had laser eye surgery, they've used a laser in that surgery procedure which involves this chirped pulse amplification CPA technique. That's how close to home this Nobel Prize in Physics part actually hits. Now, what's most fascinating about this technology, not just that it opens up whole new areas of research and access to lasers of incredibly high power, but it gives a really, really incredible and fast way of peering into the utmost secrets of the universe. seem like a little bit of an exaggeration but if you try to observe the world around you you know that you blink at a certain frequency and if you ever tried to like pulse a stopwatch there's a minimum frequency that you can go down and measure you can't measure necessarily a milliseconds just relying on your own thumb so you have to use other equipment to do that if you have a really fast camera with a really very very precise shutter you can get there in about 10 to the negative three seconds which is a millisecond if you use a measure a chemical reaction they can get down to 10 to the negative 6 microseconds. Fast electronics work at the nanosecond scale. The problem is, a lot of the fundamental things in our universe operate at a much faster speed than that, and we just can't see it. 
if you want to imagine opening and closing your eyes over and over again, the stuff we're trying to observe happening in molecules, happening inside atoms, is occurring so frequently by the time we open our eyes again, it's already finished. We don't get to see it in action. Molecular vibrations, things like photosynthesis, and even the electron motion inside atoms and molecules has been hidden to us for a long time. We just don't have a good way of seeing down to that level. But if you make a very, very powerful laser with a very, very short frequency, which is what you can do using CPA, you can actually measure and look at periods of time that are in the 100 attoseconds range. Now, an attosecond is a billionth of a billionth of a second. And what's fascinating about that is that's the world in which electrons move around in. Never before have we been able to peer into see actual electrons in action. Their motion was so fast that we basically envisaged them in a form of cloud of probabilities in the 1920s because we didn't know where they were because we had no way of actually looking at what they did. We could only observe the results. But that, thanks to these really, really powerful lasers working on really, really short frequencies, we can actually see what's happening at the electron level. And that is particularly exciting for researchers. And not only that, the work by Moreau and Strickland has meant that researchers can have lasers like that in their laboratories without having to go into the one section in their country with one pulse a day. They can charge along with it in their laboratory all the time. Now, this is incredibly exciting, not only for people who work in research, people who have poor eyesight, people who want to peer into the workings of cells, people who want to peer into the working of electrons. That's why some of the fundamental physics research can be incredibly interesting. It might seem really high concept, but the actual applications of it, in this case in particular, are incredibly down to earth. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From lasers helping trap particles and molecules in place for them to be studied, as well as getting really powerful, really precise and small lasers on a fraction of the power requirement budgets. The Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.